Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Jaime Ramirez on the show. Jaime has been a fixture at the Fresno Pacific University community as their soccer coach, and it was recently announced that Jaime would be taking over as sporting director for Central Valley Fuego FC, who will play their first season in 2022. We spend most of this podcast talking about coaching, motivation, education's role, talent development, and the future of sports. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jaime Ramirez, and Baker will take us there. Uh, hi, mate. Where do you like to eat in Fresno? Um, a number of places. Um, I think in, a, in our neighborhood, we have two places where my wife and I love the food. Tacos Tijuana. Tacos Tijuana is one of them. They're on Ventura and I'm going to say probably 9th or 10th around there. And then um, we love me and it's pizza. Mm. Love me and it's pizza on weekends. That's uh, that's our, our go-to place. Um, I think that uh, lately we've enjoyed Papa's place in Clovis, in Old Town Clovis. It's been very nice uh, after uh, the House of Juju. Ah, uh, yes, as well. Yeah, I really enjoy the House of Juju. They're like uh, potato things with this like oh, dipping okay. sauce. That that was that was a revelation to me because it's always when you get a burger, it's always fries, but to have yeah have a little potato wedge that's, and I don't, I don't remember what their sauce is called, some kind of like garlic or aioli or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that place really does burgers well. Um, and I, it's been a while since I've been there because I haven't gotten it to go, but I imagine like many restaurants are starting to open up and people are going to be uh, being able to sit down in there. What was the other place you said? Papa's? Papa's place. Yeah. It's just, it's the old Hustle Juju place where it's just down, down uh, the street Pulaski. It's on the other side of fifth Avenue and Pulaski. And there's like a little strip, it's a strip uh, mall there with about four or five different shops. And at the very end on the right side of it from Pulaski is Papa's place that used to be the old uh, Hustle Juju. Uh, and it, and it's owned by the same people. Okay. What, what kind of food is at Papa's place? Um, I think it's it's a small menu, it, you know, with a wonderful uh, jambalaya they have there. It's very nice. A couple of nice burgers, uh, fish and chips, uh, that kind of thing. It's a it's kind of kind of a mix, but not a not a wide um, menu, wide variety of foods uh, menu. It's just very very basic, and and it's a place in Clovis that right now the bar is open, so they they do sell uh, sell alcohol, and so it's. Uh, it's been a nice hangout for, for people there. And, and it's quaint. It's not, it's not really big. It's just a small, just like the Clovis restaurants, right? They're not, they're not super big. They're in downtown area. Right. So it's, it's been very nice, nice for us. Um, we, we've enjoyed uh, going uh, in to North Fresno to uh, Eureka Burger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's nice there. And, and the reason why I like those places is because they have bison, uh, bison burgers, bison meat. And I love bison. Um, Interesting. I don't think I've ever had a, I've had, I think I've had bison meat, I, but why do you prefer bison as opposed to something else? It's tastier and leaner than okay. regular beef. Okay. And so the, the, the burger to me, the beef, if it's not seasoned and if you don't have all those other condiments with it um, in uh, in a burger, you, you kind of mix those flavors, right? Whereas with a bison burger, if you were to take a bite of the bun and the burger or just a the the meat itself you'd get this wonderful wonderful taste interesting because i i guess in my brain i didn't associate leaner and tastier i assumed that like a fatty meat is the one with more flavor but that's interesting i, I need to try that yeah it, it it has a very unique and peculiar taste to me that i find very very appealing and much more um i should say uh welcoming to my palate so uh, okay. yeah, the, the burger to me is it's just a burger. I mean, if I don't season it well with the, whatever it is that you right. put on burgers, you know, I just uh, I just don't get the taste, right? So uh, so this one I, I can uh, uh, and and I haven't asked them if they season it with anything, but as far as I know, I I, I don't think so. And uh, and I and I bought it by the way. I bought uh, uh, I go to um, 
uh, uh, I believe it's Whole Foods, Blue Whole mm-hmm. Foods in, in Big Garden Village. And then I, I'll get uh, 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 it, two pounds of, uh, of bison beef, uh, bison meat, I should say, and uh, make a couple of burgers. You can okay. tell. Well, that's my challenge for the week then. I'm going to buy some, next time I'm at Whole Foods, get some bison beef and make some burgers. Yeah. So, um, you know, we're going to talk a lot about soccer. And I, I want to say at the front that uh, you and I met originally because I shared a bedroom with your son for a, a year and a half or maybe more when we both lived in Southern California. And I knew, I knew I'd heard that, you know, he showed up with his soccer paraphernalia and, you know, uh, his Liverpool stuff. And I knew that he was a dedicated soccer fan, but I really came to know it. Um, and you'll, you'll understand this reference and we can maybe explain it to the listeners when I would be awoken at four in the morning because we sleep, we slept on bunk beds, right? So he had the top bunk. I had the bottom bunk. You know, these were, these were humble days and, uh, you know, the games that he wanted to watch often were very early in the morning. And so he would sit on his bed with his phone and I'm sorry, Gobby, that I'm doing this to you. Um, he would sit on his bed with his phone. And he wouldn't put headphones in. So I'd hear the faint, <laughs> the faint rumble of the crowd. Mm-hmm. And then whenever Liverpool would score, he would forget that the whole house was dark and everyone was sleeping and just uh, rattle wow. the bed. He would just rattle the bed. And, and I just, you know, like in a, the middle of the night, like a night terror would wake up and be like, oh, oh. And, and Gobby would say gently to me, it's okay. Liverpool scored. Go back to sleep. So, you know, I, um, it's soccer fandom is, is a different kind of fandom, isn't it? It, it is a culture in and of itself and it's, it's passionate, uh, rabid at times, um, loyal, um, committed. I mean, you, you can throw a lot of adjectives to it. And until you find that team that you identify with, um, you know, we're Raider fans when it comes to American football and it, it doesn't stir even in their Super Bowl years back in the day for me particularly. And, and my children were or are Raider fans by, uh, by association. Um, but not, not like, not like soccer. Um, I have, I have a picture of, uh, uh, just recently during this COVID year of Orlando, our oldest son and Gabriel at the house when Liverpool played Arsenal and Orlando's an Arsenal fan. And I want to take this picture and send it to, to my friends and family and uh, Liverpool beat Arsenal. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm expecting to take this cheerful brotherly picture together with Marcus <laughs> and family and you can just tell the sadness and disappointment in Orlando's face. <laughs> he just couldn't get himself to to smile in this picture. And and Gabriel just all cool, you know, just giving us this big smile that he has anyway. And um, and it's just a, again a, a reminder of um, and, and Orlando is formal. Um, he's serious. Um, he's businesslike. Um, and, and you know, really thoughtful and pensive, and um, a, a coach professor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he just, he just can't show. I mean, he, he, I mean, he can't hide it. I'm sorry, he just can't hide it. And so um, I take this picture. I take several pictures of it. I'm, you know, I'm just looking at this thing like, oh, I forgot his team just lost. <laughs> and uh, and Gabriel, and Gabriel's, he, he's passionate. He really is. He, he carries his feelings uh, about his team on his uh, sleeve and he's not afraid to show him. And he's just, he's one of those, it's like me with my team from Mexico, Cruz Azul. I mean, I, you know, we yell at the screen, you know, it's like, why, why do you yell at the screen? It's got, you know, it's not going to do anything. Nothing's going to happen. Yeah. But we're, we're like that. So it, it's, well, I think you do that. have a spiritual connection in some ways. Um, in my mind, a, a, you know, I'm, I'm not as, uh, you know, I'm a more of an American football fan in many ways. And, you know, when I'm a 49ers fan, sorry to say, um, but you know, when we, when we've <laughs> lost our two most recent Super Bowls, those were yeah. uh, pretty tragic, uh, pretty tragic times for me as a sports fan. 
Um, but I actually want to talk uh, about coaching a little bit first um, okay. and your experience coaching. And, um, you know, a lot of coaches that I talk to, you know, while it's important to talk about physical attributes, that it's the non-physical attributes that often either bring someone to a height of success that they wouldn't just with their pure physical abilities or can be the, uh, you know, Achilles heel or the, you know, the, the thing that brings down a player with a lot of natural talent um, that they can't, that their mind can't be in control like they're in control of their bodies. So I guess my question to you is what are, when you're, when you're looking at like a, a fresh crop of players, what are the non-physical attributes that you're looking for in a good soccer player? Well, I, I think that you have to, part of what we do look at is an individual's aptitude for that, that sport, what is, for what is required to be able to compete um, at, at that level. And even though when you look at the, when you look at the pillars of sport, uh, the technical, the tactical, the physical, and the psychological. Um, oftentimes what comes into mind is that psychological aspect of an individual, be it a child, you know, if we're working at the youth level, or be it a, a young adult, uh, uh, or, or an adolescent at the high school level, or a young adult at the college level, uh, and or a professional player in, in their mid to late 20s, um, you, you're looking at their aptitude. I mean, how how well do they understand the nuances that are required to compete independent of your physical, technical, and even tactical attributes? Obviously, you, you can correlate tactics with maybe the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the understanding of, of, of the game, you know, the aptitude that you would have uh, of the game. But um, you know, we, we've had players of all different sizes that have, that have brought with them um, a sense of understanding of what it takes to compete. Because you're competing against an opponent. And when you measure yourself up against them, and we've had the opportunity to compete against players that are literally monsters, six foot five, 195 pounds, just specimens. Um, and you're five foot nine, you know, 140, 145. And you're looking at yourself thinking, how am I going to outplay this individual? Because it's not going to be physical. Although, my physical abilities versus their physical abilities are different, but now I have to use my aptitudes and what I understand about this <laughs> law of physics to be able to, to compete against this, uh, against my opponent, this person that's across from me, and actually outplay them, outplay them. And, 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 and that's a concept that I, that for coaches, I would hope that they understand, not beat them, okay? You, you can call it whatever you want, but to actually outplay or outcompete someone that seemingly has something over you. And, and that takes, I think, an understanding of your body, your mental ability, how to use your skills, and in the conditions and in, in the space that is given you, in that moment of 90 minutes and however many times you have to have that, those challenges with that player, okay, are you gonna win those duels? Hmm. Okay. And so it, it just becomes that for me, uh, as opposed to thinking, oh, I have to, I have to condition my players to be, to be stronger, to be faster in order to play against players that are bigger and stronger and faster than us. And it's no, so we look, we look for players that, that have that understanding of the game. You know, we had a wonderful player here, Edgardo Contreras, from uh, my hometown of Mexicali. He was all of five foot five, probably 135 to 140 pounds when he came and played for us. 
he made Alexi Lalas, national team center back, six foot four, six foot five, look silly. Uh, when we played him with the Fuego. Because Edgardo had an understanding of how to compete against someone like that. So he grew up playing in the streets of Mexicali, so he came with us with those aptitudes. And we just polished them. He just basically put him in that system and say, this is how you play here in this sector of the field. This is how you play in this sector of the field. And you're going to be better. You're going to better serve this team if this is when you use the aptitudes that you have and the skills and abilities that you learned on the streets of Mexicali to be successful here. So it's having control. It's like understanding your strengths and weaknesses and when to like knowing that I'm in this particular zone within the game where if I overreact, I'm going to hurt the team out of a sense of ego or wanting mm -hmm. to pursue something to be successful. And there are certain moments where I need to like strike while the iron's hot because this is my moment that I'm primed for. But that's both understanding because I, I think we focus a lot on strengths, but you know, really focusing on where you're limited um, mm -hmm. is, is probably just as important. Yeah, and, and, and so to that point, <clears throat> again, referencing uh, Contreras back, you know, he comes to us as a freshman, being a fantastic player in a, an environment that allows him to do whatever he wants to do because he's a Sunday leaguer, right? And um, then he comes to us, whereas at the college level, it's more structured. We have more athletes that are prepared um, in a controlled, uh, uh, if you call it, uh, um, sort of a laboratory, you know, the, 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 the fitness center, the weight room, and then they're not going to let him do the things that he's accustomed doing, to doing in, in, uh, in Mexicali. And so he comes and plays towards his freshman year, and he wants to take the ball from our half all the way to the other half, I mean, to, to, the, to the other goal. And it's like 20 minutes into the game, he's done because he has to work that much harder to beat these type of athletes. And so this is where coaching comes into play to recognize this kid has certain aptitudes Okay, let's teach him to use those aptitudes over here, but not over here. Mm. And so I had to convince him, say, Edgardo, when you get the ball here, release it. Release it. Don't fight with the midfielders. You're a striker. You get to the, you get to, to the attacking third, we'll give you the ball there. Have your way. Yeah. Have your way. And so, it, you know, it, again, it, it, it just when I, when I look at a kid when I'm out recruiting – I'm looking at those aptitudes and I'm saying, yeah, I, I see a defender that overlaps all the time, all the time. I loses the ball all the time. And I say, okay, I like the fact that he overlaps all the time. I like the confidence that he has. Okay. I can teach him to harness that and to be more calculating as to when he can and cannot do that. Got it. So, well, so that kind of leads me pretty naturally. The next thing I want to talk about was, which is motivation. You know, there's a lot of uh, books about motivation, how to motivate people, um, and I'm sure you've had a lot of experience motivating every type of player. Um, so how has, um, over your career, your understanding of motivation changed? Um, I think, I think as a young coach, when you're, when you're a young coach, uh, and this, I'm speaking from my experience and then some observations that I've made, even of my colleagues that, that we coached against each other. Mm -hmm. um, as young coaches 30 years ago, and we had a different way of managing ourselves on the sideline <laughs> right. to now. Um, and, and I think when it comes to motivation, um, when we're young, uh, our, our sense of trying to motivate our players really speaks as a young coach about the end product. Winning is motivation. <laughs> right. Winning is motivation. You just want to win as opposed to understanding the process and then appreciating when a player does something well on the pitch between the posts that is part of the game, part of the entertainment value of the game that you're trying to teach how to play through the lines from the defensive third to the midfield third to the attacking third and vice versa going back. And well, I learned how to appreciate that and motivate my players to understand the beauty of the game in the performance aspect of it uh, for the entire 90 minutes 
um, that took away a little bit of the result because we are a result-oriented society. I learned that when I went to Europe. When I started going to Europe in my education tours and I was sitting as a fan and I noticed how the fans appreciate good play and they clap as if though they were in the theater when there was a good tackle. Uh, you know, and here when there's a good tackle, we get off our chair and go, yeah, rah, rah, you know, and, and it's like, we wanna, we wanna kill the opponent as opposed to recognizing whether you're the visiting team or the home team, that that was a good football play, soccer play. Bravo, bravo, right? And that's motivation to the players to do the good things of the game, to perform well. And in those performances, enough of those performances to applaud those performances from goal to goal, oftentimes leads to goals. If you, if, you, if you reward those enough and if you give the kids enough, um, I should say, affirmation during training, during games, then that translates into more good plays throughout. So that when you get to what we call phase four, finishing opportunities, you're going to get more of those perhaps than your opponent. And you are going to get those results, but focus on that process and motivate your players to understand that it is the process that is going to get us the good things that happen in the process is going to get us the result, the end result. So developing those like good habits and paying attention to the details. Oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. And, you know uh, an example of that, an example of that are my children. Okay. I can tell you because my children were, were part of our home laboratory of me becoming a coach back in the early to mid nineties. Um, and testing a lot of things with them, okay? Orlando was a finisher, our oldest. He learned to strike a ball in any, any, anywhere near the area, the box, he was gonna score. Julie, our daughter, was a playmaker in the midfield, okay? When she had the ball in the midfield, very difficult to take the ball away from her, and she would get out of difficult situations and boom, play other players. And Gabriel could strike a ball. He could strike a dead ball. Corner kick, free kicks, I mean, he could put a ball like, you know, bend it like Beckham, okay, to quote a, a saying. And, and out of those situations, you know, you, you, you perform well in those, and there's a place for you. There's a place for you on the pitch. Those are qualities that are needed. Um, Gabriel wasn't going to dribble past three, four, five opponents like Orlando could and score goals, but he could maintain possession, play simple, one and two touch soccer in the midfield. And when we had a free kick opportunity, to put the ball in the box, oh my goodness, remarkable, remarkable. We scored some of we scored some of our best goals that I've seen that were professional level goals from a service, you know, from him. And on the girls' side, you know, the build up and the momentum and in habilitating another player into a scoring position that came from Julie, you know, and, and and Orlando had Orlando had all of it. I mean, he had passed to goal, but he scored seventy something goals here at the university, and he's a first team All America, and and so. Uh, the, they were sort of my my lab that I saw the results, you know, in them. And I teach a lot of what I learned by teaching them to uh, to the kids that I coach now. Yeah. So I'm going to ask a kind of a big hypothetical question because I'm just curious. Um, so if if I suddenly had the power to make you, Jaime Ramirez, the soccer czar of the United States, you're in control of soccer policy and everything. And the, the goal I tasked you with was to make uh, U.S. soccer, men's U.S. soccer, more competitive internationally. How would you think about that task? And what, what are maybe some simple things that you would put in place to develop a, you know, a, I don't know if I want to say a bigger soccer culture because it's already here, but uh, maybe more competitive? Well, I, I think... One of the things that we continue to discuss in this country is how short we have fallen in the player development aspect of it because we do live in a play, pay-to-play culture within the club system and the top clubs um, get the kids that have more money, they have more resources, and uh, we, we develop in this country the cookie-cutter type of player. 
and we take away the creativity from them, partly because we're a continent. We are a continent. And so West Coast soccer, Midwest soccer, Eastern soccer, Southern soccer, it's all different. And it's being able to take the differences that we have, okay, and make them their best. And recognizing East Coast soccer is different than West Coast soccer. Let's take, let's make West Coast soccer the best they can be with the style that they play, okay? We're more possession-oriented, individual skill-oriented. You know, we have some fantastic ball players in here. And also, as we've been talking already for decades, let's get into the inner cities, let's get into the small rural areas and find those players like Danny Trejo, who was from Mendota, and four years ago, he was discovered by Cal State Northridge after I already had him here on campus and he was admitted to come to Fresno Pacific and play for me <laughs> in NCAA Division Two. And his senior year, okay, this is Division Six, Division Six uh, high school ball, and he was playing for a third division club. Okay, I brought him to play for my first division club, a couple of friendlies, and he just tore everybody up. He was like the the Edgardo Contreras of the Central Valley to me. Not quite as good as Edgardo, but maybe a notch below, but fantastic kid, fantastic. Winner. And he was about to break the, uh, the career record for high school goals in California for all divisions. Easy wow. to say because you're playing division six, right? You're a talented kid and you're scoring five, six goals a game. Doesn't matter. If you can score goals, you can score them anywhere. Yeah. So, Calcin Northridge comes senior year because this kid's about ready to break the record. They offer him a full race scholarship. He goes to Northridge. Four years later, he gets drafted by in the first round by LASC. Yeah. So, so, here's, so a, here's a kid that's discovered in a rural area. Right. So it's about t- uh, uh, finding talent and then exactly. having the having the right structures in place to develop it. So, so, so. With you saying that, one of the things that the United States has not learned, this is what I would do, that is not learned from European countries, from South American, is um, establish a network of talent scouts. What baseball did in the early days, and they still probably do, but baseball is fading. Baseball is getting less and less popular as soccer and a few other sports gain more popularity. Soccer particularly, because when I soccer, I think it's going to eventually take over as our number three, uh, possibly number four sport because it hasn't surpassed hockey yet. Yeah. In terms of uh, viewer audience and money mm-hmm. and sponsorships and things like that. But it will. It eventually will. Right. Baseball ba- baseball's in trouble right now. Yeah. As you are aware now of you know the grizzly situation here in town right and i yeah. and and the cheating obviously is a sign of like <laughs> i mean yeah. i you know if if there's a drive to cheat then there then that means that there's something going on yeah absolutely so so so, uh, so yeah and so so the europeans they're amazing at having for one one small third division club probably 20 to 30 scouts, volunteer scouts looking for talent all over the area. Wow. And then finding kids at seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 years old. And I know that we have a, a counter, counter soccer culture in this country say, well, we shouldn't specialize that early. Well, everybody's specializing early. Football, football kids, softball girls, um, That's actually what I was going to ask you next was you know, about that debate because I've heard I've heard arguments on both sides, you know, that with some sports, if they specialize too early, that can lead to injuries over time. So if you're a if you're a pitcher, uh, a kid that's uh, throwing fastballs since they're seven or something, that over time you can do damage, or you know, or or this idea that kids maybe don't know what they want. So give them opportunities to explore lots of sports. So where, where are you in that kind of dichotomy between those two uh, camps? I, I'm, not, I'm not against exploring other sports. I'm a product of that. When I came from Mexico as, as an 11-year-old to Clovis school system, they didn't have soccer there. So 
I had to play the American sport. So I ran track, I played baseball, I did volleyball. Um, I did uh, uh, football. Football was a thing that kind of kept me going. Um, I did tennis. I did, uh, you know, a bunch of different sports. And then by the time I, I reached high school in ninth grade, uh, then I played soccer. By the time I was a senior, it was just football and soccer. Yeah, I did play for the tennis team only because the coach asked me to. I had some tennis aptitude. <laughs> I played it as, as, a, as a, I was a good athlete and I played it recreationally. I love tennis. And they asked me to be on the team and but not because of, um, uh, you know, I was a great tennis player. I was good enough to be on the varsity team. That was it. But, yeah. but I played all those sports and I know that each one of them helped me to understand, if anything else, to continue to develop the, you know, my muscle memory on, on doing some things and stay active. Um, however, back then you didn't have year-round sports. You had seasonal sports that you still do, but kids now are doing even those seasonal sports year-round. Yeah. Right. You have baseball in the fall. You have baseball in the spring. You have baseball in the summer. Uh, when I played football, we had just the summer. We had nothing in the spring. I don't remember nothing in the spring, because we had the spring sports and most most football players either did wrestling, they did some of them did basketball and some of them did baseball, some of them ran track. And then uh, we had the little summer uh, passing and, and receiving and, and defensive backs, a uh, little three-week, uh, two-week league kind of a thing, or a monthly yeah. league before we went to, to the training camp. So it, it, now it's like, oh, now it's like nine months. And so I, I'm, I'm okay with, with specializing. I don't, I don't have any, any trouble with that just because um, whether you play one sport or another, you're using up those muscles year-round as a seven-year-old or an 18-year-old. And so, right. you know, in, in, in these days when there's more professional opportunities out there, why not specialize as a soccer player? Right, right. I think, I think what worries me, and I'm a, I'm a teacher, and I see this sometimes with parents, where, you know, they'll want their kid to let go of other things early on uh, while they're still figuring out who they are. Um, and because they feel this pressure that if they don't start early, like, you know, the stereotypes of those parents teaching their kids the violin at three, that if they don't start them early, they can't be successful. Yeah. But that's not true, right? I mean, you can, you can dabble around a little bit, but at some point in your teenage years, really focus and, and still be successful. At least that's, it yeah. seems like that's true, but. Yeah. I, I think, I think that as a teenager, as a young adolescent, once you commit yourself to something and you're willing to invest the time on a daily basis on that, you're going to be successful. And let's face it, you know, the Messi's, the Ronaldo's, and those, I mean, they're the exception. They're the exception. The, the rest of them, you know, they, 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 they all, I think we all have a similar path. I had an opportunity to play professional soccer here in the United States in 1978 and in, in, in the 1980 when I graduated. This is after not having played soccer for four years after I came to this country as an 11 year old. I had, I had some muscle memory. So when I started playing in high school, I mean, I, I just picked it up, right? And, and I couldn't lament the fact that I didn't play for four years. I was just thoroughly enjoying the fact that I was able to play. And then I played seasonally, three months, my freshman year, sophomore year, junior year, senior year. So you, you, you look at it, four years of having played one year, right, of those four years combined until I joined the men's team my senior, my, the, the summer after I graduated. Then I was playing every week. And so because I loved it so much, okay, and I had already that the fundamentals and the basics uh, basics of it and um i could score goals i could run i was offered a professional contract i have it here right behind me see it off of my shoulder right there i was offered a professional contract 1978 by the las vegas seagull of the north american soccer league who had some of the best soccer players in the world elsevio the black panther of mozambique from portugal to be one of them the, the star of the 1966 world cup um they saw something in me at that time when the sport was up and coming here in this in this country um i was good enough to, to, to play professional after having missed out probably 
thousands of hours yeah. of, of preparation. So I tell kids that, you know, some of my players say, well, profe, what if I play, you know, tennis? Go play tennis. You know, go, go do it. Okay. But if we have practice, try not to miss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, right. if you can practice at home, another 35, 40 minutes on some of the skills, don't miss. Because it's not about not having time. There right. is time. Right. What's, um, what's your view of the club system right now? It seems like it's such a complicated system. And, you know, I have family members that are in college sports, in volleyball, not soccer, but and hit him describing the complications of scouting and clubs and all that world. It, it seems like it's so much more complicated these days than maybe it used to be. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's more complicated because it's more involved, it's more demanding, it's more time consuming. Uh, there's fees involved, you know, for directors, for coaches, you know, and, and families feel like they're investing. And, and I agree with that. If, if you're investing for the right reason. However, the challenge lies with coaching education. In my opinion, coaching education, the Europeans are brilliant at this. They're brilliant because they educate all of their coaches and they require and demand that their coaches receive education by the top level professionals they have within their, their associations, federations, etc. I don't know the culture of the American sports when it comes to coaching certification. I know that there are, I don't know what you call them, in services or uh, weekend. Um, I don't know what it, I, I don't. I don't even know what you call them. In soccer, they're called educa- coaching education courses. So I'm going to call them that for yeah. uh, for the American sports. Okay, you want to be a football coach, okay? Can you coach beyond just your experience and what your coaches taught you? And can you not coach 12-year-olds like you were coached when you were in high school or in college because they don't understand that? Are you able to receive an education and say, this is how you treat 12-year-olds, and these are the things that 12-year-olds should be learning how to play. These are the things that 6-year-olds should be learning, you know? And, 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 and that, I think that's the part that's missing. That's the biggest mistake we're making and then you have, you have a father or a mother, they play at the collegiate level and want their nine-year-old to play that way. So there's the pressure of them to do that. You know, and I, I was just talking to a parent earlier before I came to this, this meeting, a gal that played for me at the Fresno Pacific University and, and uh, their children are now involved in sports about how um, the, the parents, when they take the kids home after a game, they're just laying into them, laying into them about what they expected as parents. Even though the parent played the sport, they don't know what it's like to stand on the sideline and coach. They just think things ought to be done this way. And that's to me, is detrimental to the child. If we can just leave them, okay, and take them home and love them and take them to eat and at home, if the coach said you need to practice an additional 30 minutes, two or three times a week, just to make sure they do that, encourage them to do that, but love them for what they are. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the kids are already getting, I mean, they already feel the pressure from the coaches, their teammates, like they, they, they don't need extra pressure. Right. I mean, I think parents feel like if they, if they're authoritarian with their kids, the kids are a going to perform better and B love it more. And it's the opposite always. I mean, maybe they might perform a little better out of fear, but in the long run, you want your kids to love it. And so it's step back. You know, let me give you an example. Um, every child on a team, let's, let's say 11-year-olds, every child on a team looks at coaching differently from their own lens. And we're assuming that we're teaching them all the same thing mm-hmm. in an activity but they're receiving it differently. They're hearing it maybe a little bit differently. They may be hearing the same words, but they're, he- they're hearing it differently and they're internalizing it, okay? Assimilating it a little bit differently. We had a young lady come and talk to us, 11 year old, that she gets nervous and frustrated and loses her focus in the game when the coach, one of the coaches yells at her from the sidelines. And I've listened, I've listened to this, I've listened to what is, what is being said, and I had to explain to her, um, 
Okay, one of the things you have to understand here is that we want you to, we want the best for you. And thank you for speaking. Her, her mother made her speak to us. She didn't want to. She was embarrassed. And I understand it. It's difficult to talk to coaches. That's right. 11 years. Right. Uh, but, we're trying, but we're trying to create an environment where they can talk to us. However, they're not in charge. We're in charge. We know the game better. However, we have to be better educators. So one of the things I told her, I said, uh, because she had alluded to a coach that makes her nervous when he yells at her from the sideline. And I explained to her, please understand that we're an outdoor sport. You are 25 yards away from, from the coach and the coach wants to tell you something, which I need to address my coaches and say, try not to yell at the kids, you know, <laughs> Just let them play. Bring them in at halftime, make adjustments. You know, if you need to make an adjustment during the game, okay, yeah. Make sure that your voice as it carries sounds like you're giving instruction or you're giving praise, not negativity, not a negative comment. Um, but I explained to her, you, you do understand that we have to raise our voice because this is an outdoor voice. If we're trying, trying to send a message to you, it's different than a coach trying to scold you. If you're taking it as a scolding, if you're taking it as a negative comment, okay, we, we need specific things that you're hearing. If you're hearing specific things, and I, I need to hear that, and we can address it with, uh, you know, with the coaches because, because that's important. So that's an opportunity for a, a teaching moment for us to listen to a child say, I get nervous and I feel like I, I stop playing. Uh, okay, that's, that's good to know. Nobody else feels that way. And if they do, they don't want to say it because she, she looks at that aspect of coaching differently than others. And yet there's, I know there's a couple of girls who say, I want to be yelled at. I want to be scolded. I want to be told when I'm doing things wrong. Okay. Right. And oftentimes we know that that comes from home. That comes from home. And so you have to look at all those factors. That's why coaching education to me is so important. I think that's where we're missing it. Coaching education at the various levels. I've, I've gone to, I, in fact, I used to stop by a number of years ago, a local field here by, by the university where I would see coaches training kids. Number one, the kids were taking lap after lap after lap after lap for fitness, apparently, without the ball. And that, to me, in soccer is a no-no. Then they would start the practice and, and scrimmaging and the yelling, the yelling and screaming because this particular coach had no coaching education and he, he played Sunday league and he wanted those kids to play like the like Sunday league to understand the game and to do the things that Sunday leaguers do. Men, adults. Yeah. That'll never happen. I mean, you, you go home as a coach and you're miserable. You're miserable. So, so it's sort of a two-edged sword. The kids lose and you lose as a coach. If we don't change that as a culture, if, if we don't infiltrate all of the levels of youth competition and say we need a comprehensive coaching education program to go to the communities that are that don't have uh sanctioned affiliated teams to california youth soccer association north but they have teams that, uh, of kids that play on weekends if you don't go in there and say hey listen we want to help out and we want to we want to educate your coaches that's what we need to do never mind now they organize system that we have with the big clubs around the country where we still have coaches that are not doing what the curriculum says they should do because they are they have pressure to win right pressure to win yeah and i we've seen all those bad coaches there's a there's the (laughs) that uh, it's a netflix documentary called last chance you and it's about these colleges where community colleges where athletes that didn't make the D one cut will go to. And then the coach is all about winning and getting them to a D one program. And you just watch him berate the players and yell at the players. And it's like, it's like they missed some of these coaches missed this whole, uh, you know, revolution in uh, understanding that like to motivate people, you don't berate them and yell at them. It, It doesn't work. It's something that, um, we've figured out. I mean, in education where I'm at, we figured that out, a while ago that <laughs> yelling at a, a student to write a better, better paragraph is not going to, is not going to do the job. You have to understand what's standing in that kid's way and help them 
as a collaborator in solving their problem. Um, but a lot of coaches just, it's like this, uh, that, I don't know. I mean, you're definitely right. It's, it's clearly a lack of education. And when you prioritize results, it seems like if, as long as they're winning, they don't see any reason to get educated. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned that about the kids, about the paragraph. Um, I taught elementary school for 12 years, uh, fourth, sixth grade, third grade combination, third, fourth. I remember being somewhat that teacher that frustrated because the kids were not understanding the structure of a paragraph, the mm-hmm. structure of a sentence. And then after a while of, uh, or maybe a few years, recognizing why am I so frustrated with that? You know, I'm obviously I'm not getting, making it across, but I'm not understanding all the factors. And so typically in those days, I don't know how to handle education now, if a kid didn't finish the assignment, didn't understand it or didn't do it, then it would keep him for detention for 30 minutes. We had the, the legal right to do that by district approval, uh, even without notifying parents. We did, we notified parents. And I noticed that once I kept them after school and they had that one-on-one with me, they would get it. They would understand. There was an environmental situation going on at home that I didn't understand. And you know, not that I assumed that everybody was on the same board. I could tell that they were coming from different home environments. Right. and started making a difference in it and then and then all of a sudden the kids are started coming early in the morning before class started they wanted to be inside the classroom three or four of them you know with me before class start started to get that one-on-one right right because they, they weren't getting that one-on-one at home they were getting that 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 the time to explain things how they were and when they were explaining as a group it was just too many distractions yeah. So anyway, that, 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 it made me think of that. Uh, right. And it, it seems mortality. like it seems like coaches need to have this like strong identity of who they are. So they don't give in to those pressures of just win, win, win and prioritize everything else uh, or prioritize only that above everything else. And it seems like if, you know, you've got a kind of loose sense of who you are and your beliefs and values it seems like it'd be really easy to just go, okay, I'm going to abuse my players so I can win and get praise, validation, a pay raise, a bigger job, whatever else. Absolutely. No, it, 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 it's there. It's there. Um, yeah. I think it's important for coaches that are, that are listening to this to understand that uh, if their club, school, whatever directors, principals, ADs are telling them that you must win and that is the message you're giving to kids, then be prepared to prepare those kids to win. And if you're telling kids we have to win, I think you're going about it the wrong way. Because to, t- to put that kind of pressure on, on, on kids, is, uh, I-, I think is wrong. The process, if you're doing things right, the process, you're gonna win more games than you're gonna lose. If the process is correct, if the instruction is correct, if the curriculum is there, uh, and if you just, sit and watch games and make adjustments during the game because soccer is a free-flowing game. You can't call timeouts except halftime. Your adjustments are to be made at halftime. But if you take notes, you know, yeah, you, sometimes you got you, 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 you to gotta yell things. You got to say, you know, make some adjustments on the fly. Um, but you do it in a, in a teaching education type of way, not in a demanding, angry, I need to change this situation right now because if I don't, we're going to lose. Right. Right. So um, two final questions um, quick here at the end. Uh, This next one, we can just kind of uh, touch. I'm sure you've covered this in the other podcasts you've done. Um, I just wanted to briefly talk about what your hope for professional soccer is in Fresno. I know that's a huge topic, but we've gotten so deep in the coaching stuff. That's where I chose to spend our time. But could you say a little bit about what's going on with professional soccer in Fresno and what your hope for it is? Um, to me, my hope for professional soccer here in, in the Central Valley is that it would give opportunities, open door for young, talented players from our area to, to have a platform for them to compete in their community. Um, and hopefully be a springboard 
to other opportunities that could come their way. Um, Central Valley Fuego FC is a third division professional franchise right now. The goal is to eventually move to championship, which is second division, and ownership has talked about MLS. Is it going to be in our lifetime? I don't know. Um, but those are goals, and I like that. I like to have um, a strategic plan, so to speak. In three years, where we're going to be? In five years, where we're going to be? In ten years, where we're going to be? I mean, that's. I think that's that. That's a. It's a goal of every organization, right? Right. And so, so that platform for kids from our central. Central Valley mixed in with sprinkles of kids from other areas because we're not going to be a hundred percent Central Valley. We're going to be majority Central Valley as we have been in the programs that I've been involved with when Fuego first started in 2002, 2003, my Fresno Pacific teams and certainly, you know, our, our club teams are all, you know, from, from the area, even though sometimes you get kids from out of, out of town. But yeah, to, to give kids an, an opportunity. And also that we will have a, a women's component of it. Um, I don't know if it will be professional right now. It looks like it's going to be an amateur side of it. They were also going to provide opportunities for Fuego women to compete and to play. And that, to me, rounds it all out. You know, I started the women's soccer program here at Fresno Pacific University. It's been 20 years since that happened. It's great. It's up and running. You know, I've coach women's uh, club soccer. I'm currently working with the online girls at our club, you know, I mean, I coaching men, I coach boys. I mean, soccer, you know, like other sports in, in our society, you know, it's gender equal, right? You know, we live in a Title IX society. We've got to give opportunities for our young ladies to play as well, okay? And so we're, we're going to do that. However, the professional, the professional level right now has leaned towards the boy side, the men's side. And so it is our, our goal to represent the Central Valley and give kids an opportunity to, to do that. At the same time, grooming younger generation of coaches that is coming up. Those guys that are finished playing professional soccer, those kids that are finishing their college careers and are gonna dedicate themselves to, um, to the sport of soccer and, and coaching and to groom them and to train them with the appropriate levels of certification in order for them to be the next generation of coaches that develop young professional players from our area. Great. And I want to close with um, books. Um, we've been talking about coaching a lot. Are there certain uh, books on coaching or about coaching or written by coaches um, that you'd recommend to the audience? Well, I have one right here and, and, and let me get it for you so I can show it to you. Yeah. called Revolution, Revolution, uh -huh. and it is the philosophy of Marcelo Bielsa. Okay. Now, there's a lot of schools of thought out there. There's the Johan Cruyff School of Thought, there's the Guardiola, which is a byproduct of the Johan Cruyff, um, but Marcelo Bielsa has a tremendous, he's an Argentinian coach, um, he has tremendous influence over European soccer right now and that a lot of coaches have adopted his style of play. Very offensive, very, very offensive. He just loves to go forward and, and he makes all of his players have that understanding of, of going forward. It's not the, the, the what they call the tiki-taka style of Barcelona where you just build up and you go and you go and you go and then you create opportunities out of that. You maintain possession in the opposing half. This guy is just about go, man. Let's go forward. Let's let's play through the lines. If we can find a defend, if a defender can find a pass to the striker, and it's on the ground and it's easy to handle, we want to do that. Um, and and so right now I'm I'm reading it. I'm done reading the actual text. I'm now going over the uh, training sessions that he has, and it's a fantastic book right now for coaches. It's easy to read. It's re it's in English. It's translated after the interviews are done with him. Marcelo Bielsa is the kind of coach that I think every coach should look at that wants to learn how to make teams better. He's not about coaching championship teams. He's, not taken, he's been offered contracts by the top clubs in, in Europe and in South America also. Um, but he, he says, I'm not, I'm not going to coach a team that some uh, manager is going to tell me how to coach it. 
it's a manager that's going to tell me what players I want. It's, I'm going to coach a team that I'm going to coach the way I coach, style that I have, and I have a say-so as to how I run, I run my team. So he coaches mid-level professional teams, or he coaches teams that are about uh, ready to, to be relegated, the relegation zone, and he brings them up. He brings them up to compete against the top teams. And, and he'll, he'll, he'll admit that to, to my own detriment, my philosophy has hurt me from coaching one of the, some of the top teams in, in the world and possibly to earn championships. He says, but it, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm sticking to my philosophy. This is the way I, I, I like to coach, and this is what I'm going to do for the, for the rest of my life. Um, and, and really shows you that here's a man who's interested in process, process more than results given his wisdom and, and his understanding of the game that he that he's willing to forego coaching some of the top teams in, in the world so i recommend revolution uh for for any young coaches out there all right well uh final surprise question from gabriel uh can you tell us a little bit about uh leather crafts that's what i was told <laughs> to ask you uh well you know it, it's something that i picked up in high school i i took an elective my junior year and I liked it so much that I took it the second semester and did it for a year. Um, I just happened to, to be good with my hands. First of all, I grew up in an era in Mexico where all the soccer balls were leather. I just love that smell. And I remember going to the leather shop downtown in Mexicali and looking at the, uh, the, uh, the different kinds of things they made out of leather, you know, the jackets, the holsters for guns, um, the, uh, uh, what do you, what do you call them? Those things that whip the horses. Uh, I think it's a lariat. Um, anyway, so di different kinds of things. And I just, I just love that, that, that idea. Um, and then, um, um, then I was asked to be a, a, a TA for the teacher. And I said, no, I went, I went to other things. Fast forward to me becoming an elementary school teacher in the school district, Fresno Unified brings uh, teachers on special assignment to work with kids, specialists mm -hmm. in, uh, in, in different kinds of crafts. And one of them was leather crafts. So they brought in a teacher during my, my teaching days, uh, that uh, gentleman that, that, that knew how to do leather crafts and did projects with the whole class. And he just took me back to, to my high school days and I loved it. And at the very end of the week, he would do a, a, a key, little keychain, a couple of things, like wristbands and things like that. <laughs> and then, uh, and then at the very end of the, uh, of the session, he said, hey, how about uh, if you want to purchase a set of uh, tools for your class, and this is how much it's going to cost you. And I'm looking at that, I have that kind of money. I was fundraising. So I bought uh, uh, tool sets for, for my class, and I began doing class, uh, leather crafts, every year. And then I taught summer school, and the summer school migrant program had a ton of money available, and I bought more tools. And already it's been probably close to 30 years that I've been doing leather crafts and I got involved in, when my sons were, my, my, my children were little, I started doing uh, keychains with superheroes, you know, or big <laughs> superheroes. And I would trace them by hand and then, and then trace them over to the leather. And then I started doing bells and I started doing, uh, besides keychains, a bunch of other different things that, uh, that, you know, little leather frames with specific little designs on them, handcrafted. Um, and yeah, and so I, I just I just began began doing that, and so um, I, I become more and more detailed about doing doing things like that, and so it, it's been something now that I do for my players here at the university. I make keychains as number tags with the Sunbird logo for their backpacks, their travel bags, you know, and things like that. Rather than having them embroider their number, you know, I'm, I personalize them with their initials, do things like that, and so. Um, it's become a, a, a hobby of mine just to get into my hobby room and, and kind of lose myself for a couple of hours uh, uh, during the week sometimes and, and finish uh, or, or work on some projects that I could, like to offer to, you know, to friends and, uh, and family. And so it's, it, it always comes as a surprise because it's, it's handmade. And I think we all know that when somebody takes the time to make something for you, it's a, it's a little bit special. And so I, I love doing leather crafts. Well, thanks for talking to me, Jaime. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure.
All right, that's all for us today. Make sure you give us a rating and review if you haven't already, and you can also support us on Patreon on our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresnosbest. Stay tuned for our next episode, which will drop this weekend. Until next time.